Now, in 1965, a mysterious real estate investor started buying up property in central Florida. And it all kind of happened at once, secretively. But started to gain some momentum. 1,000 acres here, another 1,000 acres there. Eventually, 30,000 acres in all. And people were trying to figure out who it was that was behind this massive purchase of land. At the time, the Kennedy Space Station had been built, and America was on its mission to put a man on the moon. So maybe some people thought, maybe this is for NASA. They got a, some kind of support thing going on for the Kennedy Space Station. Other people thought maybe it was Howard Hughes had some crazy plan that he was cooking up in Central Florida. Then finally, in November 1965, the news broke that it was Walt Disney who purchased 30,000 acres in Central Florida to build the world of tomorrow. Today it's known as Walt Disney World Resort. And it's a beautiful, wonderful place where dreams come true. But one of the interesting things to me about this story is not the vision of Walt Disney, which is unparalleled. But it's the fact of his perspective versus the perspective of people who gave up that land. You know, when he started to buy this property, he had set up all these kind of shadow and shell companies so that nobody knew who really was behind everything because he wanted to avoid land speculation, people hiking up the price on their property because they knew it was Walt Disney. And he was pretty successful at this. Some of the property he bought for as little as $107 an acre. But the day after the news broke, you couldn't find property near those 30,000 acres for less than $80,000 an acre. Overnight, $107,000 to $80,000. Land that some people thought this land was absolutely worthless. They'd never seen it before. They'd inherited it. They'd heard it was swamp land. They didn't want it. They basically gave it away. But he had a different perspective. He saw how priceless this land could be. If he could just get enough, he would create a city that could show the world what the future could be like. So his perspective on that land was totally different than the people who owned it. And that changed everything. And this morning, as we continue this series, Across Shaped Life, I, I want to talk to you about perspectives. And particularly your perspective on the gospel. In just a few minutes, we're going to see that the word of the cross, what Paul calls the gospel, the word of Jesus' death, on the cross basically divides all of humanity into two groups those who are perishing and those who are being saved and it all revolves around your perspective and your response to the gospel of Jesus this morning I want you to know that the cross is foolishness to self-confident people but it's powerful to save those who are spiritually weak so which group are you? You're self-confident? You came in here ready to hear a good, happy, feel-good Palm Sunday service. You got it all together. Are you self-confident? Or do you know your spiritual weakness? Let's look here together at 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to start in verse 18. First Corinthians 1, 18. This is what God's Word says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've been here with us over the past few weeks, we have been thinking about the cross of Jesus, and we'll culminate next week to talk about the failure of the cross, and I hope you'll be here for our Easter service as we think about that. But last week, we were, we were talking about the finality of the cross in the book of Colossians, the way the cross stands over and against all the wisdom of the world, that at best it's just a useless addition, but, but at worst it's a terrible distraction that keeps our eyes off of Jesus. And today, I have wrestled all week trying to avoid to preach the same sermon I preached last week again, but I couldn't help it. And so I just assume that God wants to get it through our thick skulls how important the cross is. See, last week in Colossians, we saw that Paul was primarily concerned with threats that stood outside the church going to cause the Christians to deviate from the message of Jesus that they had received from the Apostle Paul. So he warned them not to be led astray, or he said, taken captive. Don't get kidnapped by the traditions of men, but cling to the cross. Today he's not so much worried about threats outside the church as he is about the attitudes that are already present within it. To the Corinthians were everything that the Colossians were not. Colossae was a backwater town. Corinth would make modern cities look small and insignificant. A cosmopolitan place like you couldn't imagine. And the Corinthians uh, thought of themselves as cosmopolitan people. You know, the sophisticates, educated, well thought of, respectable, cultured. And therefore, the longer they walked with Jesus, the more offensive the bloody cross became. You see the passion of the Christ and the violence, the blood, the pain, the agony, the suffering. If you're a respectable person, that's just not the kind of thing you like to talk about over dinner. You want to move beyond the icky cross stuff to something that's a little bit more respectable. And so that's the mission the Corinthians were on. They were trying to supplement the word of the cross with some other kind of philosophy, some other kind of wisdom. But from the beginning, Paul takes them by the neck, points their head to the word of the cross. He says, this is it, folks. The word of the cross is it. He says in verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And this word of the cross is important. Today we think of the cross and we admire it sitting in our baptistry. It's a beautiful symbol of God's love for us. But of course in the ancient world, the cross was the most terrible form of torture you could imagine. It'd be like today saying the word of the electric chair is the power of God. It was intended to cause so much discomfort and agony that everybody who saw it would be deterred from following in the criminal's footsteps. So it's understandable why these self-respectable people might have wanted to get away from it. But Paul says down in verse 23 that all he preaches is Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. I told you last week over in chapter 2, I made it my aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's like everywhere Paul went, he's preaching the same sermon. The word of the cross. The word of the cross. Do you know about Jesus Christ, the man who was sent from God, who lived a sinless life, who performed miracles, who cast out demons, and who was finally, believe it or not, crucified on the implement of torture? That's everywhere Paul goes. That's all he talks about. That is who he is. And he was warning them, and I'd say God wants to warn us, that to the extent that we deviate and add to the word of the cross, we distance ourselves from our only hope of salvation. So the first thing I want you to know this morning, I want you to see it clearly, and I want you to be warned. The cross is foolishness to self-confident people. Foolishness. Now maybe you notice throughout this passage, Paul contrasts the foolishness of the word of the cross with the power of God. Or what he later says is the wisdom of God, Christ crucified. And foolishness and wisdom are categories of evaluation. You, you say... Is it foolish or is it wise? You determine whether any given action or belief or way of looking at the world is foolish or wise. These categories answer the question, is such and such reasonable? Does it make good sense? Especially in the ancient world, the question of wisdom was seeking to answer the question, how do you lead a good life? What does it mean to live a flourishing and prosperous life? They believed that wisdom was required. And you can still read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which he devoted to his son. And you could read about Aristotle's belief that the virtuous man is wise and therefore lives a good life. And that's the context that Paul's talking to. And he says that the person... The people, the church, the Christian, the man, the woman, the teenager, who seeks to evaluate the cross based on the normal categories of evaluation, end up in the same place every time. The word of the cross is foolishness. Is, is the cross, is the message of the God-man, Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross for sinners, is that a reasonable belief? Does that make sense that God would suffer for us? Does the cross lead to a flourishing life? According to the world's categories of evaluation, the normal metrics you would use to answer such a question, you have to say no. 
It doesn't make sense. Why would the God who created our world, who is transcendent and majestic, seated in heaven, where nothing affects him, choose to enter into the brokenness of human life? No weakness, hunger, suffer loss and pain, weep over the death of his friend. Why would God do that? That doesn't make any sense. Does it lead to a flourishing life? The word of the cross? Well, not for Jesus. The cross was the end of Jesus' life, wasn't it? And he says, if I want to follow him, I've got to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow him. Sounds like death. I don't want that. That's not a flourishing life. And so from the world's normal categories of evaluation, the normal metrics you might would use to evaluate such a thing, you end up in the same place over and over and over. It's foolishness. We think of foolishness, and Mr. T comes to mind. I pity the fool, right? But foolishness in the ancient world was something different. Not just unreasonable or irrational, but really crazy. Madness. And for the ancients, they believed that the word of the cross was madness, craziness. The context for this are these traveling orators, professional debaters, who went from place to place and stood on the street corners with a tin can, seeking to impress the crowds that would gather in exchange for a coin, for a tip. And so you'd have crowds of people gathered around these orators, evaluating their answers to what a good life looks like, to what it means to be wise. And so you'd hear one speaker this week, and maybe next week he'd leave town, and another guy would come in, and you'd evaluate all these different wisdoms, all these different messages alongside each other. And apparently what had happened is this Corinthian church, which knew so well the methods of the traveling orators, had begun to evaluate Paul and other Christian preachers, and beyond that, the actual gospel message itself, as one philosophy among all the others. And so maybe you know the book of Corinthians well enough to know that they had divisions because they each had their preferred teacher. Some go after Apollos, some go after Paul, some go after Cephas, some go after Jesus even. Can you believe it? They evaluated all these different wisdoms as a pick and choose. You decide which one is best, which one's going to make the most impact in your life, which one's going to lead you to the place you really are hoping to get to. And in so doing, they had completely missed the point. That in holding the gospel up next to all these other philosophies and ways of living, they had recognized the cross as foolishness and thought that was a major flaw in the message. Paul, the way Apollos puts a spin on it, man, he, he really minimizes some of that lost stuff. Why can't you be more like him? The Apostle Paul says, foolishness is not a flaw, it's a feature of the gospel. It's actually the main thing, and that's where he gets to in verses 19 and 20 when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, which our kids are learning about today, actually, the prophet Isaiah. But he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29, verse 14. Now, in fact, let's look at Isaiah 29 together. You can turn there with me. I'll give you time. Isaiah 29. Now, Isaiah is a prophet preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah. And speaking at a very important time in their life, they see the Assyrian Empire growing and threatening their prosperity and security. They see their brothers to the north in the kingdom of Israel even suffer exile. And they think, hey, you know what? We've seen this thing before. The Assyrians are powerful. We're just little Judah. Maybe we could look around us 
and see if there's some benevolent nation that might would enter into a treaty with us so that if things really get bad, that we could call on them and they'd come into our rescue. So they had begun discussing with Egypt the potential of a military alliance. And in verse 13, God speaks to the prophet and he says, Because this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists merely of tradition. I love this. Learned by rote. They're just going through the motions. Therefore, behold, I'll once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Here's Judah saying with their words, Oh, we trust the Lord. We trust Yahweh. He's never failed me yet. He came through for our fathers when they were in Egypt. He established a throne of David, promises to raise up a son for him someday and establish a kingdom as far as the sea to the rivers. We believe that God is able. But, wouldn't it be wise of us as shrewd students of geopolitical politics to enter into a treaty just in case. What if God, for some reason, chooses not to? Wouldn't He be proud of us? Wouldn't that be good of us? Hasn't He given us common sense to know that it'd be good for us as a little kingdom to have an alliance with a larger kingdom? And that's when God says, hey, your words are meaningless. What good is trust if it doesn't lead to action, real dependence? And so he says all this wisdom that you guys are throwing around, thinking of yourselves as wise diplomats navigating a changing world, you're actually proving that you don't trust me at all. Your wisdom's nothing. They thought by their manipulating the politics of their day, they would secure their future. But instead, by their distrust of God, they sealed their fate. They thought maybe they could forestall an Assyrian invasion. But because their hearts were far from God, they did avoid the Assyrians. But the Babylonians came and hauled them off the exile, destroyed their temple, hauled off the gold, and put it in Babylon. Now, they didn't, they didn't secure their future. They sealed their fate. And that's the problem with human beings. That you know this as well as I do. That we can convince ourselves that our lack of faith in God is really wise maneuvering the challenges of life. So we convince ourselves that we don't need Him, like maybe the Corinthians did, not on the level of politics, but on the level of spiritual things. Hey, we get that Jesus died for our sins, but isn't it wise to also continue to live a good life? Isn't it good for us to see where the truth is in the world? All truth is God's truth. Let us take a little bit and add this in to this message of the cross. Let us figure out how we can navigate a changing and difficult world. Paul says, you missed it. You're just like the people of Judah, saying they trust God with their mouth, but hedging their bets by entering to an alliance with Egypt. You're the same way. In your wisdom, you have evaluated the cross of Jesus, and you have said, it's foolishness. And so Paul says, verse 20, I love this, look at the cross. Where's your wise man now? 
Where's your scribe? Where's the one who can analyze the scriptures and tell you exactly how things are supposed to be? Where's your professional debater who rolls into town with a wonderful message applauding him? You listen. Where is he now? Nowhere. What can any of these people say to the word of the cross that says that even our righteousness is filthy rags? I read it this week in our Bible reading plan. Luke chapter 16, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says, You men are always trying to justify yourselves before people. But your righteous deeds are an abomination before the Lord. That's the problem with human beings. We tend to lay our hopes on all sorts of things, believing that they're wise, that they're going to lead to a flourishing, prosperous life. They make sense to us. And yet on the cross, Jesus shows how foolish we are to think that we could ever do our lives apart from Him. That we could ever find meaning or purpose or joy and anything beyond the God who made us and entered into our brokenness to save us. Up there on the cross with Him, it's not just our sins, but it's every world system, every philosophy, every wisdom that we would claim is dead compared to Him. Paul knew this well. He'd preach to all kinds of people, rolling into towns. He'd go to the synagogue first and preach to the Jews. And so he's going there to talk about this crucified Messiah, which is a contradiction of terms. It's an oxymoron. A crucified Messiah, like jumbo shrimp, fried ice, doesn't exist. Now, Messiah draws to mind a real clear picture. A king with a throne and a sword on a horse riding into town, slaying people, chopping their heads off, letting the streets run red with unrighteous blood. That's a Messiah. And then you get Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. A bunch of little kids praising him. This isn't the parade of a reigning king. Whatever it is, it isn't that. So he knew the Jews would say, okay, yeah, we've heard about this Jesus guy, but you're going to have to show us something. Give us a sign or something that he's a real Messiah. We know the Messiah is going to set up a kingdom. Where is this Jesus' kingdom? All I got to go on is the fact that you're saying that somebody somewhere saw him resurrected. Give us a sign. Jesus, of course, had to deal with people like that in his own day. They asked him, teacher, give us a sign. He said, I'll tell you, this perverted and unrighteous generation is only going to get one kind of sign. The sign of, the sun, the, the, the sign of Jonah. For th- Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days. So will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then on the third day rise again. That's the only sign this wicked generation gets. And of course, that went over their heads. What are you talking about? We know the story of Jonah, but you're saying, what? Give us a sign. Paul said, that's all they want. That's all the Jews want. They want a sign. But instead, I give them a stumbling block. The Greeks, too, they got their own obstacles to overcome in accepting the cross. They want some wisdom. Greeks search for wisdom. I like this one because I don't deal with a lot of people asking for signs. But I do deal with people asking for logical proofs. Can you prove that Jesus says He is who He says He is? Well, that's a little bit challenging. okay? Because, like C.S. Lewis said, I believe in the Son. Right? Not just because I see it, 
but because I see everything by it. It illuminates my whole world. How could I, and I'm speaking here as Brad Mills, how could I attempt to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is? That's like me trying to prove to you that water is wet. It just is. I know it is. I feel it on my body when I'm in the river. I see it run out of my hair. I see evidence of it everywhere. You want me to try to prove to you that Jesus is real? That's so crazy to me because He is so real to me. He has so radically changed my life. He has filled me up with so much joy. Somebody told me the other day, Brad, you're always smiling. And I think about Brad Mills 15 years ago. Totally miserable. Angry. And I wish that Brad Mills could see me today. See what God is able to do in filling a person with so much joy that it exudes from them. That's not me, y'all. That's God. Jesus is real. How do I prove something like that? I can't. It just is. And so it's foolishness. Oh, if you can't prove it, I'm not going to believe it. I can only believe the things that I can see. I can't see it, so I can't believe it. Paul knew that's the way the world works. You evaluate things through your own lenses. And when you do, you end up in the same place every time. The cross is foolish. But then there's another group. Not just the self-confident, but Paul says back in verse 21, there's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And just like Walt Disney's 30,000 acres was priceless to him but worthless to others, the cross may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. Which group are you? So the big takeaway from the second group is not anything about them in particular. Paul says to those who are both Jews and Greeks. So it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what gender you are. It doesn't matter. For all people who are being saved, Christ is the power of God. What's the difference then? Not about ethnicity, not about gender. What, what could be the case? And he says, well, it's those who believe. Verses 21 through 25, he really hammers on this. He says, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the distinguishing factor between those who are perishing and those who are being saved is belief. Belief. But maybe you've been around church to know that this word gets thrown around a lot. Jesus talked about it. It was actually Jesus' thesis statement for every sermon he ever preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He told Nicodemus, John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth. Belief. Paul also talks about belief in Romans chapter 10. I love this passage, and so I'm going to read it here to you. He says in verse 8, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes 
in Him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they haven't believed? And how will they believe in Him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Belief is everywhere. Everybody agrees. Jesus, Paul, me, we all agree. Belief is the distinguishing factor between those who perish in their sins and those who are saved unto everlasting life. But what is belief? You know, from the outside looking in, people want to tell us that belief is a blind leap of faith into the unknown. It's agreeing with some facts that you can't verify on your own. But if you want to get on to the salvation thing, you just got to agree to them. Like 2 plus 2 is 4. It's just a fact. So, hey, it's just a fact. Brad just said it's a fact. You can't debate it. Water's wet, just like Jesus means the world. So, um, what you going to do? But belief isn't a blind leap of faith into the unknown. The Bible never says that. I don't know if you've heard that before. If you think that's true, it's not. It's a lie. Belief is not a leap of faith. Belief is trust. Trust. Wholehearted trust. The same way a mountain climber believes and trusts that as they lean back over the cliff to begin their rappel down its face, that the rope's going to hang on to them, not going to let them slip. Their life is on that rope. They're trusting it, believing that it's there. It's got them. It's the type of belief, the type of trust that a person has when they're floating out in the middle of the ocean, clinging to dear life to a piece of a boat that's just capsized. They're holding on. They know if they let go of that thing, they're done for. Their hope is in that piece of wood. That's belief from the Bible's perspective. It's talking about wholehearted, single-minded trust. Take hold of it and never let go. That's what Paul means when he says that the word of the cross saves those who believe. Not because of some ability they have to jump off the cliff and just leap into God's great unknown or something. And you maybe don't have that. Maybe you can't work up in yourself belief. Well, join the club. Who can? How do you manufacture that kind of trust? You can. Belief is not a work of ourselves. In fact, belief is something that God has to produce within us. You can turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you start asking yourself, Okay, it was well-pleasing to God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And you get it in your mind, clearly, 
that maybe you have belonged to that first group, the self-confident. But now you're a little bit less sure of yourself. And you're thinking maybe it would be nice to get on on this salvation thing. And you hear somebody say, well, all you got to do is believe. And you find yourself grasping. How do I believe? How do I believe? What do I do? And Paul says, well, it's not something you can do. It's not a result of work so that none may boast. He actually makes this point about boasting an awful lot. He'll talk about it later in chapter 1 in verse 29. He'll say that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe so that, verse 29, no man may boast before God. The whole point of the gospel message is that it's not earned. It's not evaluated alongside all the world's wisdom. You don't get in on it because you're able to see or believe something that everyone else isn't. You get in on it because God so works in your heart that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, He made you alive together with Christ and raised you up with Him and seated you with Him in the heavenly places so that in the future ages He would be able to lavish His mercy and grace and kindness upon you in Christ. It's God did that so that you wouldn't have any basis of boasting. It's not because you or I are able to believe something someone else can't. It's because God, by His Spirit within us, produced in us faith, trust that would take hold of Christ. It's what Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Belief is not a blind leap of faith in the great unknown. It's trust in Christ, and that trust only comes when it's produced within us by God Himself. And so now we've moved the problem back a stage. If you need belief and can't produce it in yourself, then you discover that it's only something God can do. Well, how does God produce faith in a person? How on earth does He come to people who are totally satisfied and self-confident in the way they've got their life all planned out? And in a moment, reorient their entire world. I say, turn their world upside down. How can he do that? Through the foolishness of the message preached. It happens imperceptibly when somebody, somewhere, stands up in front of a crowd of people, whether in 1st century Corinth or 21st century Luling, and says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And all of a sudden, the message that once sounded foolish, nonsense, unreasonable, unbelievable, all of a sudden makes sense. And not only do you take hold of it by faith, it takes hold of you so that you can't do anything else but believe. It's precisely by the preaching of the gospel that God produces faith within us. That's why those who hear it have to hear it preached. That's why it's through the preaching of the foolish message that Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can do. It's not something that you can just leap out and discover. It's something that God produces as you hear the Word of God preached. Period. That's what Paul says. Let's read it again because I see your questioning faces. He says in verse 21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Look over with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Because Paul knew and believed, and I am banking my entire life in ministry on the promises of God's Word, 
that whether one person or a million people get saved through the ministry of the church does not depend one dot or iota on the ability of Brad Mills to preach. Do you hear me? Whether somebody somewhere today or tomorrow or 10 years from now gets saved at Central Baptist Church does not depend on my ability to persuade or prove or woo anybody to Christ. It depends solely on God. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of, quote-unquote, wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. They weren't. So if you want to evaluate me that way, he says, do it. But you need to understand that I have intentionally emptied myself of all that I am. I eschew the world's wisdom. I have no time for it. I want you to know the persuasive word, not in persuasive words of wisdom, but I want you to know the spirit the Spirit of God demonstrating Himself in power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on God. How is it that the same message can be preached to 75, 100, 500 people at one time and produce different responses in people? Because we go on evaluating it through our own lenses, by our own means. We hold it up against it and we say, well, I hear what Brad is saying. I see the scriptures right there. Those who are being saved believe that the word of the cross is the power of God. They believe that Christ alone is able to save them from their sins. But, man, if I took that seriously, do you know what I'd have to change about my life? Do you know if I accepted this fact? If I really believe, people would think I was crazy. No, they wouldn't. They'd think you were a fool. Like Noah, right? Old man, the Bible talks about living in the desert. One day God comes to him and says, Noah, it's going to rain, brother. Noah says, explain to me exactly what you mean when you use the word rain. It had never rained before. But, but God says, hey, clouds are going to show up, and then water is going to fall from them, and it's not going to stop for 40 days and 40 nights. So Noah evaluates this using his ancient mindset. Is it reasonable to believe that clouds are going to show up and water is going to fall from the sky for 40 days and 40 nights? It's never been that way before. Does it make sense that it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights? Not really. Never seen it rain one minute, much less 40 days. This is foolish. But when God spoke to Noah, he believed it. He trusted that God is a God who loves him. Wasn't about to come down and play a trick on him or something. That He really wanted Noah and his family to know life. To be saved from the coming storm. His judgment. And so Noah acted on it. It wasn't a blind leap of faith into the unknown. He knew God. He knew God's character. And so he acted. He clung on to God's promise and said, If you build a boat at a gopher wood, and loaded up with a bunch of animals, I'll bring you and your sons and your wife and their wives through this storm, and you'll be saved. So Noah does it. Sets about building this boat. 
people come along and say, hey, Noah, what are you building? Building a boat. A boat? For what? I think they knew what boats were. They had rivers. But why a boat this size? Well, God told me to. Why did God tell you to build a boat? Because he says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And they say to him, Noah, you're going to have to explain to us what you mean by this word rain. He said, clouds are going to show up. Water's going to fall from the sky for 40 days and 40 nights. It's going to flood the whole earth. And he told me that if I build this boat, he'll save me and my family. And they laughed at him. You're a fool. Everybody with common sense and the right mind knows that rain doesn't fall from the sky. You're a fool. You're wasting your life. You've pinned your hopes to something that's never going to happen. And then the rains came. And they perished. That will be the story of your life. You'll pin your hopes on something that people say is impossible, unseemly, uncomfortable, and unverifiable. Why? And my prayer is for you that you do it, knowing the cost. You'd willingly and gladly suffer whatever reproach comes upon you for knowing Jesus. And that as your life grows closer to Him and becomes shaped more and more by the self-sacrifice that He made for you on the cross, that you'd get to know the joy of suffering for Jesus. So this morning, which group are you? You're the self-confident, you're willing to make your way in life based on your own wisdom and your own evaluation of the cross are you believing, trusting, hanging on to Jesus with every fiber of your being? Let's pray.